Say hello, I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I will be joined by Regan DeLoggins after uh, a few minutes here. She's running a little bit late. Um, look, before I uh, get going, as usual, I want to remind people that we are listener-supported radio, and we appreciate being on the air in New York City and in Washington, D.C., uh, but we, we depend on you, the listener, to support these stations and to support this program. So uh, if you are listening to me right now <laughs> uh, and you appreciate the fact that your station is providing a, a space for um, my voice and for Regan's voice, then uh, please do let the station know. And you can do so by... Uh, by calling their pledge lines, you can call uh, WBAI's pledge line, which is 212-209-2950. I'll say it again a little slower. 212-209-2950. And you can uh, make a pledge of any size. Look, we don't just want you to donate. We actually want you to become members of the station. So if you make a donation of $25 or more or become a buddy, and that'll basically uh, build up to $25 uh, in, in the period, um, you know, you you become part of the station, and you you actually have voting rights and all kinds of other things. So, um, we're we're asking you to to call the pledge line and make a donation of any size. But uh, we we certainly would love you to be able to make a contribution that uh, that brings you on as a member of our station. You can also go online to give to wbai.org and follow the prompts there. Look, and we are running a little bit behind. We're not going to we're not going to lie here, so we do need your we do need you guys to step up and 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 help the station. If you're listening in Washington DC on WPFW, we ask you to go to their pledge line and that is 202-588-9739 or you can go online at WPFW dot org and follow their prompts uh, again folks we depend on you to support these stations and to support these stations giving a space for native voices so um so please do support your stations um okay you know we we are oftentimes news driven and whether it's news that is is not widely known or whether it's something that flashes across uh, national headlines or international headlines um, we oftentimes feel like we have to not only respond, but respond in such a way that perhaps you're not going to hear from, from Regan and I what you're going to hear from everybody else. So the news this past week was uh, the discovery of 215 children buried um, at the, uh, uh, the the Kamloops Indian Residential School on, on the grounds there. Um and look, this isn't; these aren't children who were buried recently. These are the the Indian residential schools that I've talked about in the past, and which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, but the remains of 215 children were discovered with a ground penetrating radar. Um, at first, that news came out as 215 buried in a mass grave. Uh, they're they're basically. Um, defining it differently you know they're they're calling them unmarked graves you know and and it, it, you know look we get to, we get into parsing language a little bit i mean it, it isn't like somebody dug a hole and 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 threw 200 children into that hole and covered it up but if you are digging holes if you're digging the you know holes in the ground and burying i i still think it qualifies as, as mass burial i'm sorry you know the question is i guess over how long a period of time and that we don't know yet but the the sense is that they have discovered with this with this one uh, search 215 um the remains of 215 children and it could be more i mean it could be significantly more because this is these aren't just unmarked graves this is an undocumented burial site so none of the these are undocumented deaths i mean so none of the stuff is being accounted for in any way shape or form so they located um an area where they have been able to identify 215 bodies um, that have been buried um still not sure about the time frame yet i mean this is a you know a, a school that that operated from 1890 to 1978 so this is a thing that you know almost 100 years uh, almost 90 years anyway so uh when was the last one 
uh, last child, the last person uh, buried, who, who knows? But what, what becomes evidenced by this discovery is partially the, the gruesome nature of what these residential schools were. Now, this is on the Canadian side. So if anybody who's, who's listening to this, you know, in Washington, D.C. Or, or, you know, in New York City is saying, well, at least it wasn't on the American side. Well, let's just hold up for a second here, because one of the most famous Indian residential schools, Indian boarding schools, was the Carlisle uh, Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And it was famous for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the level of PR propaganda and and promotion that this school was engaged in in everything from putting a football team together. In fact, you know, Pop Warner is associated with Carlisle Indian School, and um, and Pop Warner has you know legendary status in in not just well in, in the game of football. Um, Jim Thorpe, uh, you know, his athletic prowess was was developed while he was at uh, at Carlisle Indian School. So this was really widely um, uh, promoted as the positive attributes of the school. But the fact of the matter is, is that, it, that it's not that pretty. Uh, Carlisle Indian School had a graveyard there, and those graves were marked. And, but that graveyard had, had at least um, 200, almost, almost 200 children buried there. But, the, but there's pretty good indication. In fact, there was a researcher by the name of Preston McBride a couple of years ago, and he's a graduate of Dartmouth, who started looking into, into um, Carlisle Indian School. And he's come, as far as he's concerned, there is somewhere probably closer to 500 kids that either died at Carlisle Indian School or were sent home um, terminally ill, some of, some of whom never made it home. They died on the way home. You know, and this was a this was actually a way that um, Richard Henry Pratt, who was the the architect behind the Carlisle Indian School, you know, tried to keep the numbers down so the the death rate wasn't really as widely known as as what people were suggesting. But but the fact of the matter is, there were the death rate at the Carlisle Indian School in in Pennsylvania. I mean, and this isn't off in the middle of nowhere. Um, was so high, it was a higher death rate than soldiers dying in the Spanish-American War. It was a higher death rate than than any any given state that had native people and the native territories on it. The amount of kids dying at at Carlisle Indian School was higher than those states. So now, now, so the question ends up being, you know, obviously, well, why are they dying? And you know, and that's obviously one of the questions that, that came out of uh, the Scamloops this, this uh, Indian Residential School on the Canadian side. Well, the, the death rates are associated with a variety of things, not the least of which is malnour- malnourishment. I mean, these kids were essentially starved, which made their immune systems weaker. So they would have disease, infection after infection after infection. They they would have you know these epidemics that would sweep through these schools tuberculosis being one of the prominent ones and because the resistance i mean these are kids that were not even though they were working in these uh, oftentimes in farm fields producing vegetables that's what the schools were selling what the kids were eating was was basically bread and water i mean it sounded like a prison diet because it essentially was a prison diet so these kids were dying um, at, at some point in the Canadian press. It was published that that the rate of death at these um, at these residential schools on the Canadian side had reached up to up to 50 percent. Literally half of the kids in these schools were dying. Now, it isn't very well. It's it's not documented very well. I mean, none of it is documented very well. I mean. The, the Canada went through this whole truth and reconciliation uh, commission and went through this whole process, which was you know, supposed to investigate so much of this. But of course, the plug got pulled on finances. So the idea of actually doing real investigation on how many people ha- had died at these residential schools, they thought it was just too expensive you know, to come up with these numbers. So you, we still have people who are, are looking into this stuff. But as a result of what w- was um, discovered and what was exposed during that Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 
Uh, Murray Sinclair, who's native, but he but he's was serving on this uh, on this thing, was um, uh, had suggested that what transpired in these schools was cultural genocide. Now I've addressed this before, and let me say it one more time. That's just BS. It's not cultural genocide. It's genocide. Does a culture die when you commit genocide? Absolutely. That's kind of the purpose of a, of a genocide is to destroy not only a people, but a culture. It's, it's essentially ethnic cleansing. But what took place at these schools, everything from the mal, malnourishment, the, the abuse, sexual abuse, the intentional deaths, the murders, um, the sterilization programs, everything that took place at these schools, all equal genocide. In fact, just the mere uh, attempt to eradicate um, the Indian-ness, kill the Indian, save the man, the idea of trying to eliminate any kind of cultural connection from these kids to their, their own culture, to their families, to their communities, that too is genocide. I mean, one of the definitions of genocide is creating the conditions that would cause a people to cease to exist. Well, I mean, on the Canadian side, I mean, to, just just to be clear, I'll give you a, a nice quote I have here. This is from one of the guys who um, was responsible for for running um, the the system, the 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 residential school system in Canada from 1913 to 1932. His name was Duncan um, Campbell Scott. He says, "I want to get rid of the Indian problem. I do not think it's a matter of fact." that a country ought to continuously protect a class of people who are able to stand alone. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic and there is no question that the, uh, there is no more Indian question and there's no more Indian department. That was his, that was his, his plan. He was, he was determined to teach children to hate their culture, to despise the, their language and their ceremonies and their and, and even even their look. First thing that these kids went through was to have their hair hacked off. You know, the all the girls had their these standard bowl cuts. The kids, the boys, either had their heads shaved completely or, or even had a tighter bowl cut. They were put in uniform, so none of their clothing, none of their language, very little of their of their look, and they they were heavily indoctrinated with uh, with with Bible studies. These churches were were funded by the U.S. or the Canadian government, but they're all operated by uh, by churches, varying denominations. Uh, Catholic Church had a big hand in all of this stuff. And the and the amount of abuse and uh, and, and death, I mean, look, some of these deaths are associated with, with kids who were desperately trying to get out of there, running away, oftentimes freezing to death. There's also an awful lot of deaths that are, that are not just um, literally buried in unmarked graves, but we we've heard story after story about um, uh, kids being incinerated, especially babies who were born because of some of the rapes that were taking place in these uh, in these schools. They were they were taking infants, newborn infants, and tossing them into incinerators. So this is the level of atrocity that was that that these schools were um, were associated with, and. United States has, has has no bragging rights over Canada on this thing. I mean, and the fact that Canada at least did a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, although I think it is it has been a shallow undertaking, and it has obviously, if now this many years after they did their Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we we are still becoming more and more aware of the uh, of the some of the death count associated with the. Uh, with, with these residential schools. Look, when they did the, the, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they, um, they came up with numbers um, you know, that were just shy of, um, uh, of 4,000 deaths. And, and, and by many estimates, they figured there was at least 4,000 kids who died in these residential schools. And keep in mind, we're talking about schools where 150,000 know, Native kids were ripped from their homes and sent to. But it's it's turning out that uh, that it is more likely, especially because of this the, the level of unmarked graves, undocumented burial sites, and undocumented deaths, that uh, that number may be well over six thousand. And that's not a you know, look that 
that's not hyperbole. That's not you know a wild guess. This is just based on the numbers that are trickling in. Now, if you start to look at um, on the on the U.S. side of this thing, where there was the same level of cover up, the same level of, uh, of of abuse, and in fact, it's abuse that might even be been more well funded. I mean, the, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of these residential schools. Some some were actually located on native territories. Some, like Carlisle Indian School, were far from any native territory, making it that much harder for for kids to uh, to escape. But oftentimes they would send kids farther away from their home rather than, than the closer residential school. They'd send them to a farther residential school to make it that much more difficult, and also to make sure that that those family ties were severed that much more uh, significantly. I mean, this. You know, when people talk about ethnic cleansing, they oftentimes view ethnic cleansing as just the, the, the mass murder of people. That's not what ethnic cleansing means. It includes that, just like genocide includes murder. But what ethnic cleansing really means, what it really means is the idea of wiping away the ethnicity, not necessarily killing all the people. And, and that's what these residential schools were, were precisely about. They were precisely about trying to eliminate the nativeness. Kill the Indian, save the man. That's exactly what it's about. Um, I understand, Regan. Do have you have you gotten to us here? Oh, I've 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 been here. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I know you said you're going a few uh, minutes late. I just I just figured I'd ramble until I <laughs> got some indication you were there. Regan, I want to yeah. thank you so much for uh, uh, for for getting to us. Um, you and I didn't talk much. We, we sent a message or two back and forth. We knew we had to address this issue. Um, I don't know if you want to add to anything that I said or uh, or reaffirm anything, but uh, uh, go ahead and have at it. I think all of us were incredibly, you know, we when, when we found out that, you know, these 215 remains had been found at Kamloops, all of us, I think, were shocked but not surprised because we know that many of these schools, many of these boarding schools um, have not released their records and reports. And I actually wanna push back and challenge um, something that you just said, John, which was that, that there isn't a lot of documentation. In fact, you know, I, I, that, I don't, I, that's untrue. There's an incredible amount of documentation. Um, I, I look at the Miriam report of 1928, which was created by the uh, Department of the Interior, specifically, documenting all of the abuse happening in these uh, on the on the American side within these uh, residential schools. There's actually so much documentation of um, the rampant diseases like tuberculosis, like measles, um, and as well as the malnutrition and as well as the sexual and uh, and um, and physical abuse that many of these children, um, you know, were inflicted. So there's an incredible amount of report out there. It's just a lot of it isn't shared or told or um, or, or even accessible. Like I, I know where to look. I, you know, I'm a historian. I know where to look to find these things. And I've been looking at the Carlisle Indian School uh, archives all week to, you know, for for a number of different, you know, to mourn as well as to look at research. And it's it's there is so much out there. And I think that's what I find so disturbing was that the intention of killing the Indian and saving the man, uh, which is a, a quote attributed to Richard Pratt, who's the army officer who then developed the Carlisle Indian School. So that's interconnected. The man who said, kill the Indian, save the man, then went on to create the Carlisle Indian School. So the intention here was never to educate indigenous people. It was to, to as he even said, was to kill indigenous people, You know, to kill us through, uh, through extreme and overt assimilation through these residential schools. And also, the it's important to note how much blood quantum is also related to residential schools. So it was a, it was a two-prong approach to really destroy indigeneity from, um, from, you know, from the inside out. And targeting the youth is not, it was not, uh, you know, under this guise of education was strategic. It was meant to, they specifically targeted young people. I, the youngest uh, recorded person at uh, at Kamloops was a three-year-old child. A three-year-old child was in this space 
to be re-educated and to be assimilated and to be, you know, to honestly be killed. That was the intention. So I, I, I think that it's important that folks know that the documentation that exists within these schools, because as you said, these schools are run by the church and the church loves documents. The church may, loves paperwork. It's a bureaucratic system. So there's so much documentation about the abuse that existed at these, that still exists within these residential schools, both in so-called Canada and in the so-called United States. And we just haven't read them. And a lot of that has to do with the education that is provided contemporarily. We know I didn't know about residential schools as an indigenous person until I learned about residential schools as an indigenous person. It's not like they teach this within our history courses. Many people are unaware and we're unaware until the 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 grave site was found that residential schools were a thing both in so-called canada and in the united states well and and i, and I just want to add to that um part of the reason that uh that this thing is, is so unknown is because even the survivors have suppressed so much of this i mean it is we hear story after story after story of of people who, who've tried to tried to get inside with their grandmother or their grandfather to say, you know, well, tell me about it. And, and they just simply don't want to relive it again. So, you know, so this thing is suppressed by, even by the survivors. So it, it's not just about cover up. And, and I, you know, and, and again, I'm not suggesting there aren't plenty of documents, especially on the U S side. Um, what I was suggesting was that the, some of these grave sites are considered undocumented sites. Um, and that's, that's what they, you know, they discovered here at, uh, uh, Kamloops was that there was no, um, at least nobody's talked about record of that burial site. I'm not sure how they they discovered it in the first place, but um, so you have you do have a lot of records, but you we also have a a planned cover up. I mean, this Richard Pratt was notorious for trying to downplay, you know, any of the atrocities that were taking place at his school. He, I mean, keep in mind, he not only developed the Carlisle Indian School, he was trying to develop a model that he thought could be taken, you know, not only across the United States, but, but obviously it would be taken into Canada. And, you know, frankly, Australia, New Zealand, there were, there were other places that, around the world were, who were looking at this as, you know, frankly, the model for ethnic cleansing. So, Richard Pratt was, uh, I mean, this was a guy who, who had really, really devious motives behind what he was doing. So, yeah, there's a lot of documentation, but there's also a lot of cover-up in some of that documentation. But, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. If somebody takes the time to look, and, and this is where I'm even frustrated with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on the Canadian side, is I really think this was a shallow pass on a lot of this stuff. And I don't think that oh, uh, yes. there was a, the effort put behind it. I mean, it's, it's the same way that they have a, a, a missing and murdered indigenous um, relatives. I think they call it MMIW specifically. They don't um, extend the acronym, but it's just missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, they have they have policy in Canada to to combat that, to investigate that. And, you know, of course, the the investigative commission was embarrassing, to say the least. They've received millions of dollars and they, quote unquote, solved one of the 5,712 5, open cases, you know? So like, yeah. we know that any commission, whether it's coming out of Canada or out of, you know, the US side, any commission that looks into the crimes against indigenous people, especially because they're done by, the, the research and investigations done by white people, of course it's gonna miss the mark. You know, there was, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which, you know, was, was established in 2008 and so, you know, what, how, how old is that now? We're in you know, 2021. We're talking over a decade. Still hasn't done anything to provide uh, to provide resources or solace or community care for a number of different different crimes that were perpetrated against First Nations people in so-called Canada. So, you know, I, I don't find the Truth and, Truth and Reconciliation Commission to be some a, a project that I find solace in or even something that I would hope that the U.S. would do. I would, I would really hope that they don't, though I have a feeling that they will because uh, that's often uh, how indigenous uh, trauma is handled within government, uh, within, within the government is to look to Canada and then to mirror here within the so-called United States. But the reality is that Canada is not further ahead. Uh, Canada does not treat its indigenous people better 
Canada doesn't take care of its Indigenous people better. You know, if we think about what's happening at Ferry Creek right now or at Wet'suwet'en, um, where Indigenous youth are being arrested for uh, standing with the with the trees against pipelines. You know, we see how how we're taking how we're treated by the government now. Like none of these commissions or these reports or these investigative committees are actually looking to take care of Indigenous people contemporarily. So I, I find the TRC to be a complete joke um, in the same way that, you know, I find that the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Investigative Committee to also be a complete joke. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly about trying to check a box so they can say, oh, there, we, we did it. And 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 I'm sorry. And, th- and this is where I got so frustrated with, with some of, uh, you know, some of the report that came out of Murray Sinclair. I mean... Sticking a couple of native people involved in the process as as some sort of you know means to to validate it. Uh, like I said, the the mere addition of the word cultural in front of the word genocide was a major problem for me, and and, and I was I was just so annoyed. I mean, and every, and then everybody ooh and ah is oh yeah, Mary Sinclair said it was genocide. No, he watered it down. You know, you put a precursor in front of a word and it takes away from the word. It doesn't add to it, and and that's for- exactly what he did. For folks, no, I, unaware, I, for folks that might be unaware, for folks that might be unaware, um, Justice Murray Sinclair is a, a former member of the Canadian Senate, and he's a First Nations lawyer, and he specifically served as the chairman of the Indian uh, Residential Schools Truth and Reconciliation Commission from 2009 to 2015. Um, so he's a he's an Indigenous uh, judge in um, from so-called Canada, who. Uh, was one of the people that served on this committee when John is referring to Murray Sinclair. Right. That's who we're talking about. Well, and 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 that kind of wraps wraps us back around even even some of the conversations that you and I've had about somebody like Deb Halland. I mean, the problem is when our people kind of when we when they leave our canoe, as we say in the with the Turo album, and they enter in in their vessel. They have a different service. They have a different, you know, they're answering to a different keeper. And, and you know, just like I don't expect Deb Hallen to solve um, Native problems or be the voice for Native people. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm the best hope I have for somebody like Deb Hallen is that she uh, that she doesn't shut our voice down and see. That's what part of the problem is. You know, when you're talking about the strategic nature of um of residential schools. The other thing that is not widely talked about is is where these schools targeted the children. Because if you were a part of a community that was a little bit more upstart than the others, if you were a little bit more resistant to to being moved or relocated or or, or whatever, if if you if you happen to be showing more resistance, then your children were going to be grabbed in a in a much larger number large much larger capacity than others and and we know and, and I can say this because some of the folks that that I know from Gunawage and Gunazadage and uh, and Wata what what I heard was that Mohawk children in particular because of the level of historic resistance that the Mohawks had uh, uh, you know had always represented were targeted at a higher rate than, than even children from other from other some other native territory. So there was you're right. There was a real strategic nature in how they um, they, they utilize these schools to, to break our people. Well, I also you know it's I also think about when um, when Jews in in Europe were collected um, violently collected and taken and and to the death camps and how purposeful it was to make the death camps un you know unrelatable for the people there and the labor camps unrelatable for the people there so they brought in people from all over Europe um, who couldn't communicate with one another in hopes that that would you know be part you know it was part of the as part of the torture of the holocaust as part of the genocide of the holocaust the intention was to bring people together that couldn't communicate with one another and of course <laughs> because you know, we, because we were talking about histories of resistance and, and legacies of resistance, that that was always, that never worked out. You know, people always were, found ways to communicate with one another, even if they didn't speak the same language. And the same is true with these boarding schools. If you look at the car, if you look at Carlisle Indian Boarding School in Pennsylvania, which is, you know, probably the most infamous for its uh, incredible violence, um, there were indigenous people from everywhere. You know, you had Inupiat people from 
so-called Alaska. You had uh, Anishinaabe people. You had Mohawk people. You had Choctaw people. Like it was, they brought in everybody from all from all parts of Turtle Island in hopes that the, the the students wouldn't be able to communicate with one another. And they broke up families. They broke up siblings. Like if you were from from a Dakota reservation, you were moved to a residential school in Pennsylvania. You know, it was, it was rare that people were actually kept close to their communities. And you can read, and it's heartbreaking, but you can read, um, there's letters, primary source uh, letters at the Carlisle Indian Boarding School archives that you can read in which parents are begging that their children just be moved to a closer residential school so that they can see their child once in a while. And you know, most of these letters go unanswered. Most of the time, these connections were were purposefully broken. So I, I, there's, there's, when we talk about, you know, I hate the term cultural genocide, just like you do, because I think it, 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 it means to ignore the fact that it, it's, it's genocide. You know, like it, yeah. it is genocide. I think that this level of, of of torture in removing children and purposefully making sure they're far away from their communities while they're tortured and also making sure they can't communicate with one another while they're tortured is something that, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's so inhumane that how could it not just be, how could we not just define this as genocide? You know, we talk about residential and boarding schools and people are like, oh, what a blemish on American history or Canadian history. It's like, no, this is the legacy of settler colonialism. You know, like this is, right. this was, per this was strategic and purposeful. And also I think that I keep saying this because I, I don't, I, I don't think people, especially on the U S side of this um, border understand is that residential schools, they didn't, they didn't all close. This isn't just something of the past. Like I'm thinking specifically the, the last residential school to close in Canada was in 1996. There are millennials. Yeah. There are millennials who went to Gordon Residential School. There are people who are my age who went to residential boarding school to be assimilated. So this isn't something of oh, the, you know, these bodies from the 1800s, these 215 children. How you know? Of course, that's so painful. But this is this is within my generation. Well, this and, is and, within and our again, generation. Just so people are clear, we're talking about schools where the children were taken from their homes. You know, so yes, we yes. say words like school and it and it sounds like, oh, well, it's a school. No, these were like prisons. I mean, and they, I mean, I, I posted a cartoon uh, you know, on Facebook and it's, you know, it's, it looks like a school on the outside and the backside's all barbed wire. I mean, these are, these were like prisons and the kids were tortured and they were beaten and then they were not provided any medical treatment. I mean, some of these kids could literally die from stepping on a nail. I mean, and, and of course, there, there was no health or, or safety concerns. There, were, there, were, there was no OSHA or, you know, or anybody investigating these schools. And again, I gotta keep saying this, they were government sponsored and church run. These were the good Christians of the United States and Canada running these schools. This is, and I maintain, and, and I'm waiting for somebody to prove me wrong on this one, <laughs> that the clergy sex abuse scandal that is plaguing the Catholic Church and even the Baptists and some of the other denominations, I still say many of them get a strong foundation in pedophilia from what uh, these churches were able to get away with when it came to uh, these residential schools. I mean, think about it. These kids, there was nobody that they were answerable to. There was no, there was no I, there oversight. Was, I mean, it was, it was, it was insane. There's a lot of documentation and lack of documentation too, to post-traumatic stress disorders and legacies of trauma that were specifically resulted in the abuse that was received in Indian boarding schools. Like, and you know, we're also talking about Catholicism, which has a a a history of not just uh, sexual abuse but abuse in general. Like, it's, I mean, we're talking about the maintenance of a hierarchy. We're talking about maintenance of capitalism through divine right. Like there, there's just something here to, that, that needs to be criticized because look how deeply it has, has uh, infiltrated education systems. Like, it's sure. like, like that's so important for us to talk about is that there was a marriage between state and church specifically to destroy indigenous communities. Like that, that was that again, I keep saying strategic because it was strategic. 
it wasn't like oh let's run these you know these federal let's run the, these federally run schools who's going to run them who's going to do this who's going to be the most efficient about killing the indian and saving the man the catholic church well, and, and that marriage you talk about also has a, a military component to it. I mean, absolutely. When, when, for one thing, even though the word school is associated with this, there was very little education. I mean, the, the probably the most, um, the, the biggest quantity of education had to do with Bible studies. There was no right. education. Nobody was learning a trade. The boys were taught to march. And to some extent, some of the women were taught to be um only only to the service maids you know th that kind yeah. of slaves for essentially so there was there was no education to speak of there, nobody came out of these schools and on the rare occasion that that some there was there was a bright spot here or there and you'll see some of these schools that'll try to hoist up a, like a jim thorpe athletically or, or whoever but for the most part there was there was an absolute absence there was again <laughs> there were no state board of regents to determine whether you know what what level of education these schools were providing because there was no again there was no oversight and so when a kid would become if he was fortunate enough to make it to adulthood after having and, and survive these schools he came out of that with nothing she came out of that with nothing oftentimes and we've talked about the high enlistment rate well, this is another thing that attributes to the high enlistment rate in the military because there was no place else for these people to go. And frankly, the males were conditioned for this. Yeah, I, I you know, I, or, sorry, my dog's barking. Earlier to, to kind of prepare for, um, for this conversation, I, I wanted, you know, like I know a lot about Carlisle Indian Boarding School because that's, uh, you know, where a lot of Choctaw people were sent. Um, and there's a, there's a number of others as well. Um, but I, I wanted to, I wanted to look and see like how many, how many boarding schools there were. And I couldn't count how many there were. I, I ran, I like, I ran out of time. There are hundreds of these that exist throughout this so-called country. And each of them with the intention of just destroying indigenous livelihoods it's really it's it's a tragedy it's and i i don't I, I also hate to use the term tragedy because it somehow assumes like no one's at fault but there there are people at fault and it's it's incredibly it's it's naive for people to assume that this was not uh that this was not genocide it is naive for people to assume that this was not strategic um and it's naive for people to assume that the history here is is gone. We know that they're going to find more mass graves with more of our children. You know that we know they're going to find more mass graves um, unmarked with these. You know, with 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 people who are meant to be forgotten. Well, and again, even even getting back to Carlisle, which is which does have a a pretty good um, amount of documentation associated with it. Yeah, like I said, this um, uh, this uh, Preston McBride, again investigating specifically Carlisle, he he noted not only the number of of graves that they that they actually dug and marked, uh, many of which only didn't even have names associated with them. They would they, they were posted as unknown, and the ones that did have names were names that the school gave them. So it wasn't even really their their real names, and, and which made it, made it even more problematic for families to claim the remains of loved ones. I mean, it, it, it just, it goes on and on. But, it, but again, what this um, Richard Pratt was responsible for was also sending the, the sickest of the sick kids home so, so they wouldn't die on his watch, even though their their illness and their malnourishment, their you know their failing health was certainly his responsibility. He, you know, this was this was one of the ways that that he found to uh, to limit to minimize the numbers. So, I mean, it's it's it is pretty incredible when when you think about uh, you know, 500 kids at a single school. I mean, look, we're all kind of amazed and and somewhat shocked and you know traumatized by this uh, discovery of 215 um children buried in uh, uh, Kamloops but there 
this is probably something that if if every residential school and the number that I had for residential schools on the U.S. side were somewhere just just around 360 of them, 360 yeah. of them. And and it's funny, they listed it as as known schools. And I say that because even though there was a, it was a federal program, there were many places and, and I'm you know, I'm I'm here in Seneca Nation territory territory. Seneca Nation had a residential school, too. But it wasn't associated with the federal program. A Thomas Indian School um, was was financed differently, um, and 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 it didn't have the same. Uh, it wasn't considered part of the, you know, um, the fe the federal system of uh, Indian boarding schools. And so that probably existed um, in several other places as well, and some that are probably less documented than than even Thomas Indian School is. I, I, you know, I'm glad that you brought up, um, I mean, you can't not talk about uh, Richard Pratt. Uh, we can't not talk about Richard Pratt when talking about Carlisle Indian, uh, the, which is called the Carlisle Indian Industrial School for those who are unaware, um, because the intention was to create industrious people. Uh, but as you said, it was rare that education was provided. And most of the time it was uh, education so that you could be a laborer or to be, in, you know, a laborer in for the school itself um so I, I i'm really glad that you bring up uh richard pratt because for those who are unaware richard pratt wrote a lot um he wrote a book called the association of races and classes um and it specifically talks about how indigenous people need to need to be assimilated in order for them to be useful people within society and that they, uh, that we as as a as a uncivilized people need to be told, and he and he used the term noble. He believed that it was a noble cause to civilize indigenous people. So, I, and the reason I bring all of this up is because Richard Pratt also was very wealthy and had um, had his hand in a lot of things. And you'll be, I think, I guess, surprised to know how impactful. He was to a lot of educational systems. He was very. He took a pedagogical, uh, pedagog pedagogical inspiration from Puritans, which I feel like says enough. If we're talking about, uh, you know, Is that assimilation, a and, and, <laughs> right? <laughs> Are we talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about this like horror, you know, this this horrible and and uh, indoctrinative and assimilative tactic. To, for him to take inspiration from the Puritans is is is, in, is poignant. I think it's poignant to who he was as a as an educator. I put that in quotes, and poignant to who he was as a soldier because he participated in the Indian Wars. He made his career killing Indians, first murdering them during the Indian Wars, and then murdering their children at Carlisle. Yeah, you know, and and I, I think. When you say that it, w it was a noble cause to civilize, um, the missing part of that that phrase and that, that that ideology, and it was oftentimes espoused over and over again by by politicians over over, especially during that residential school era, was that we either needed to be civilized or destroyed. I mean, it was literally an either or. It, you know that if 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 native people could not join the, the the family of American humanity, then we must be destroyed. I mean, that's, and, and, and keep in mind, we were viewed as, not just as a lesser people, but as a people that, that were somehow um, mentally deficient. In, in New York, and, and I speak about this with Thomas Indian School, but also there was a couple of other uh, residential schools in the state. What they they called these schools asylums because they viewed the native kids as mentally deficient by just by virtue yeah. of race. And in fact, what they referred to the kids in New York as as the irredeemable. I mean, my my friend uh, Keith uh, Burke, who wrote the Thomas Indian School and the irre and the and the irredeemable children of New York, and he has that in quotation marks in his uh, in his title because. That's the way that native kids were being viewed through this period of time that, yeah, th they're lost causes. So let's just put them in an asylum. We'll, we'll make them work the fields. And if they survive that, then, you know, they'll, at least they will know how to do that.
and and that's and that that was it. That was that was to the, the to the extent they thought there was any redeeming value of of native people, not just native children, but native people. Yeah, I, you know, I I find today I I find talking today really difficult um, about this because it's been like a week of mourning. You know, everyone's been posting on social media about. You know these these children who's who many of them are unknown and will re- and will be re- and will remain unknown, and I find it difficult to talk about this on the radio as well as and who, as someone who's researched a lot of this not not just for this show but just because I think part of you know connecting with our culture is also connecting with these horrible histories. And going through the Carlisle Indian reports and Indian school reports and really just like seeing all of these things and and knowing that familial members were there, uh, were at Carlisle or at Spencer, which is another Choctaw um, boarding school. uh, It's just been such a heavy, heavy week. And I felt like doing this labor is incredibly important. And I'm glad that we had this conversation, but it's also just been so taxing. And I find myself find it difficult being I found this week more difficult than than most weeks. And it's just for folks to be so unaware of the histories of residential schools, the histories of Indian boarding schools, and for us to be having to do this education constantly while also in a state of mourning is 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 really is really traumatic. And so, I, you know, I say this and I and I. I I am tired and I know you're tired and we talk about these things constantly and we're just like so overwhelmed. But I do advocate that people who are listening do some research and learn about these boarding school systems, because as I as John and I both have said, you know, these are not a lot of these schools still exist. A lot of them are still uh, still have students. A lot of them are related to child protective services and how indigenous people are taken away from homes now. You know, there, there's so much more interconnected to the boarding school conversation than a mass grave was found. But it, it's it's so horrible that the conversation that we have now is because a mass grave was found. Yeah, and and I you you started to go um, go someplace that I think is worth mentioning also is that one of the the evolutions of the boarding school process was the foster care system as exactly it to native kids native kids were taken would be continue to be taken from homes for for you know during the the tail end of this hundred year run of residential schools but also it would it would continue um through the foster care system and even as the united states passes their what they call ICWA, the indian child welfare act the, the the loopholes and the ways around it. One of the one of the biggest loopholes was the Canadian U.S. U.S. Canadian border. Yeah. All of a sudden, you could have white families that could get uh, get Indian kids from the other side of the border, and that would fall outside of the protections of the of the Indian Child Welfare Act. I just think yeah, it, it goes over and over and over again, and and much of this still exists. And in fact, the relationship that many Native territories and N- Native families have even today with with um, child protective services is born out of some of that same bias and, and biases, but it's also exacerbated. By the fact that that we had that thread cut, that 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 whole idea of family, and you know the fact that we we had children who ultimately would be raised by parents who didn't know how to nurture because of what they or the, what their experience was. Now the other thing I just wanted to mention before I let it go again is is we have to remember the children we're talking about being abused here were the the peers of our grandparents. I mean I know yeah. we're still. I mean, they were children, but as we look now, we have to understand that these were uh, these were the kids that our parent, our grandparents, and great grandparents were related to or knew. Oftentimes, they didn't know, know them very well because of the very thing that you talked about by putting people together who did not have the same strong cultural connection from being from the same communities. But mm-hmm. but they would also only know them by the names that these schools would give them, so they would never really know the child that that would turn up missing. So that made it even harder for family members um, to, to research this stuff. So it, it just, I mean, it, it is ugly on every single level. And the fact that it's still being attempted to, to be covered up 
but you know by you know by, by bs programs like the truth and reconciliation process or you know or having lip service paid paid to it by any politician u.s or canadian side before yeah i mean before we hop off i i, I did want to talk briefly about the 60s scoop which i which goes into what you were just talking about john which was the 60s scoop for those who are unaware it's it's called it's like nicknamed the 60s scoop was this period of time where there was a number of policies enacted in canada which allowed child welfare authorities to scoop up which is where 60 scoop gets its name scoop up indigenous children from their um from their families and place them within foster homes but they, there are reports of those children being placed in homes within the united states and even in western europe so and the 60s scoop though it's called the 60s scoop lasted until the late 1980s and many and is connected to uh to these boarding schools so there is a direct connection between children being taken away from uh, their homes and being placed into boarding schools it's we can't ignore how often those are interconnected and often child welfare services will try to ignore or hide or play or not uh or not share that history but the federal government you know really had its hand in in in, in such an insidious way in removing indigenous children from from their homes yeah and, and and it actually does more than just ease up to the edge of it but crosses over that line of trafficking because you know, there, there's money Absolutely. involved in this stuff, and and I and it's not just sex trafficking. It's uh, you know, it's it's essentially bondage. I mean, these these kids were literally sold into bondage through the, through the 60 scoop and through much of this foster care system. I mean, it's it is as bad as you can imagine it to be, and then probably a little more worse than that. I mean, and but it's reality, and 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 it's the life. I mean, it it is what many of us are still in in so many ways coping with today some of that historical trauma and trying to fill in the gaps that were intentionally created by this type of ethnic ethnic cleansing and assimilation regan i want to thank you so much uh i i know this is a tough subject and uh and i'm I'm going to have to do a lot more soul searching myself as I figure out how to reconcile this for myself. But but thank you so much. I'm John Kane for Regan Loggins. This is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.